Luke 9, verse 18. And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let, them, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, and in his Father's and of the holy angels. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he prayed... And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And it happened, as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in these days any of the things that they had seen. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so on to the end, may God add his Blessing to that reading of his word.
We come now to this next part of Luke chapter 9, the place where Jesus begins to explain a little bit more of who he was and what he was going to do. Again, it's all about the person and work of Jesus. That is the crucial thing. If you're wondering, what am I supposed to do to make sense of this great big book, the Bible? That is what you are to do. You must think of how it speaks of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here we have it supremely. Here he is speaking in very plain language of precisely who he is and what he was about to do. This is the key to understanding everything else. And we find Jesus in verse 18 praying by himself, alone. I don't think it's without meaning that this is the way the scene is set for us. Our passage, by the way, is, is mainly dealing with verses 18 to 26. And I think it's very important that we find Jesus in this way. Because one of the crucial things that are, or issues or questions that is raised by this section is who are you going to listen to? Where are you getting your information from? And Jesus is very very clearly portrayed as one who is in communion with his Father, who is receiving his word, his instructions from his heavenly Father. He is a supreme example of one who never listened to the world, never got his information from, from there, but received it precisely from heaven without a single exception. And then on the other hand, as if by way of contrast, he then asked the disciples what they were hearing from man. Who do the crowds say that I am? They talk about crowdsourcing for fundraising today. There's, I suppose this is crowdsourcing for information, and it's not very good information. The disciples re- report some semi-plausible answers as to who Jesus might be, but they're wrong. All these things that they say, they, are, they might be plausible, they might make some sense, but they're wrong. And there's only one right answer, and Peter gives it. You are the Christ of God. That is the right answer. And he got it from heaven, not from men. Dead right. But what exactly does that mean, that he is the Christ? Because the funny thing is, even though he got that much right, he got the content wrong. He, he rejected what the world was saying about Christ, thankfully, that, that, or they, about uh, uh, who Jesus was, okay, Now he says, no, you're the Christ. But even that, he was using some worldly concepts, some worldly content to that one true doctrine. He was filling up in his mind that idea, that name of Christ, and he was putting some wrong ideas in it, as we're going to see. And when Jesus explains that being the Christ means that he must suffer and he must be handed over to all those in authority in this world and, and they must die at their hands And on the third day, rise again. Well, that wasn't exactly what he was hoping to hear. That's not exactly the preconceived idea of who Jesus Christ that Peter had. Now, we have to understand, of course, that Jesus goes on to say that on the third day, he will rise again. And in fact, he's going to come in his glory to take possession of an everlasting kingdom of the whole world. But right now... In this world, his lot is to suffer and to die. That is his situation. That is what he must do in this world, to suffer and to die. Well, that brings us to the larger point. The larger point of all this is that you're going to lose your life one way or another. You're either going to lose it in eternity or you're going to lose it now. 
This is the greatest decision. This is the greatest thing that you could, the, the uh, priority that you can make. But this is the, the, uh, the equation that is given to you. You're going to lose your life. Are you going to do it now? Laying down your life in order that you might follow Christ? Or are you going to do it involuntarily when he comes again in glory? And he says, depart from you, you workers of iniquity into outer darkness. You can try to save your life now, but you'll lose it forever. Or you can lose your life now in this world and gain it forever. Now that bigger picture, that outcome, that depends on some other decisions that we make now. And I guess in summarizing the information that is given here, the first one is in what realm are we seeking life? Because we do have to start there. We have to decide whether we want it here or there. But then after that, we have to decide where are we going to get our information? Are we going to get our information from the world? Or are we going to get our information from God? And then we're going to have to decide whose idea of a savior are we going to believe in? Are we going to believe in, in our ideas like Peter was doing? Or are we going to believe in God's ideas of who the Savior is? Well, the title of the sermon is How to Lose Your Life. Because either way, it's going to happen. And when you, you take a position on these various issues, these three questions that I mentioned, you are making a decision which one you're going to do. You can seek life in this world or in eternity. That's the first point. The second point is you can listen to the world or you can listen to God. The third is you can believe in the world's Savior or in God's. Those are the three points. Seek life in this world or in eternity. Listen to the world or to God. Believe in the world's Savior or in God's. And at every point, you then make your decision as to whether you're planning on losing your life now or you're planning on losing it in eternity. Well, the very first and most basic thing is that you must seek life in this world or else in eternity. That's your decision. Um, I'm taking things, as you, you can see, a little bit out of order from the passage, but I will start from this larger principle. It says in verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now that's a, a stark enough verse for us reading it today, but I want you to understand it would be even more so for them. The Romans went out of their way to create the cross as the most reprehensible uh, instrument of torture and death imaginable. It, it was not something for Roman citizens. It, it was for those who are not Roman citizens, those in the occupied countries that were forever in the possibility of rebellion and insurrection. And as a deterrent against this, they create this mastermind sort of instrument of torture and of death, something that would be outlawed by every idea of decency that we have. Even ISIS very often simply beheads uh, their, their, their prisoners um, but here, for the, the, the Romans, for those who opposed the Roman government, it was this instrument of torture and of death. And what, so what Jesus is saying is not only when you take up the cross, there's a couple of things. Again, we're not talking about the pretty piece of golden jewelry that we sometimes think of. It's talking about two different interrelated concepts. When you take up your cross, you are identifying with that which is rejected and despised by this world. 
you are taking up something that is intended to be a symbol of rejection. The world is not affirming you if you are taking up a cross. If you have to take your cross because that's what they did back then. If you're going to, when they crucified you, they didn't just say, there's a cross over there, go stand on it. They gave you the cross and you had to carry it. It was very heavy. And so you're an ins- as you're walking along, you're the subject of ridicule and of sh- uh, despising by all who saw you. And, say- and they said, look at this foolish man who stood up to oppose the powers and authority in this world. And you see what happens to him. You are identifying yourselves with enemies of the state. Again, in our world, as those who would be um, rejected as insurrectionists. Not that we are, incidentally, and not that Christ was. That's the point. He certainly was not an insurrectionist in that way. He certainly was no threat to the Roman government in that sense, as he says, my kingdom is not of this world. But the point is, you will be taken that way. And Jesus was taken to be that way. And when you take up that cross, that's the identity you take on. Now, so having taken on that identity, then you're in subject to the end result of that, of suffering and of death. Both of those things are true. Again, it would be similar. I'm, again, from Florida, where capital punishment still goes on. If someone said to me, take up your electric chair and bear it. And that's the only way that you can follow me. Now, brothers and sisters, that is, that's not very seeker-sensitive, is it? If I was trying to gain your approval like a salesman, that is about the last thing I could have possibly have said to you. But that's, there it is right in black and white in the Word of God. Take up your cross. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, there is so much that could be said here, but it is the larger principle that I want to focus on here in verse 24. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And again, that is the most important idea imaginable of saving or losing your life. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. You, you understand? You can't have them both. That's the point. The bigger principle is if you can't have both life now, the life you want that's un, uh, untroubled and there's no problems and you're in perfect peace with the world around you and they approve of you and, and you're fine and also have Christ. You have to take your pick. Now, the rationale that is given in verse 25 is this. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed? That's, that's the calculation. We all do our little calculations, don't we? And here's the calculation that he says that he wants you to look at. What profit, all you people who care a lot about profit and loss and about benefit, cost-benefit analysis, here you go. What profit is it to a man if he gains the entire world? Not that you will. No one ever gains the entire world. Satan reserved that for one as the temptation to Christ. He actually was willing to give hand over the whole world, or so he said, to Christ in order to get him to worship him. Now, no one ever does get the whole world. They, they try, but they don't. But you could get some portion thereof. You could get a, a few percentages. Some, some billionaires actually have an appreciable percentage of the world's GDP. 
And maybe you could get that. But even if you could get ten times as much sat, what good would it do you in the end if you are destroyed then? Now that is illustrated by the parable to be found in a couple of chapters later on in in Luke chapter 12. This is the parable of the foolish rich farmer. This is Luke 12 starting in verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years, Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And so many people make that kind of decision. So many people say, I will build up such a a storehouse in this world of good things, of all the things that I've looked forward to. Some people are even willing to put off good things uh, to to the next day. That principle is not unknown to them. You work hard now and you save up and then you'll have your good things in this world. And he did that. And he was so blessed, he was such a good businessman, such a good farmer, that he was laying up all these things. And he probably could have, theoretically, have had good things to last him for the rest of his life. What's the minor little part of the calculation that that he didn't quite factor into his equation? What's the minor little thing? Fool! This very night, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be? This very night. And then all of his careful planning, all of his putting all these, his eggs into that basket, all falls to the ground because it is all for nothing. It is worthless. His soul is required of him and that he will lose forever because he was not rich towards God. He did not seek heavenly pleasures. He did not seek joy in the world to come. He only wanted what he could get in this life. Fool. Well, this is the principle. Everything else is subservient to it. We need to decide, are we going to seek our life now or are we going to, in this world or are we going to seek it in the world to come? And everything else flows from that. And our second point is related to it, that we either listen to the world or to God. That's the thing. If we want to lose our life in this world, we're going to listen to God and we're going to gain it for eternity. If we want to lose our life in the next but have it for this world, then we listen to the world. It's as simple as that. I read from verse 18, back in, in Luke chapter 9. And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked him, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, as I mentioned, he was alone praying. He was there alone, and the, the picture is... Now, Jesus' prayer life is a well-known fact, and we should never forget it. And the, the thing is, he probably had uh, far less absolute need for prayer than, than we would. I mean, he was God in sinless human flesh. And at the very least, he had no need to confess his sins or, or to ask forgiveness for them. He certainly didn't have that need. We have that need continually. 
But the thing is, he had an infinitely greater desire for prayer than we do. He would not be without it. It was, of course, his communion with his father, and he was always found praying. But I think the main point that we're supposed to see in him being found praying here in this particular passage is that he was conversing with God rather than the world. And that's really, really important. The sources of it, our source of information is, is crucial. And just to give you a very, an example, and I'm not, uh, I'm not insisting on taking sides because I don't have inerrant information on, on either one. But I'll just, I'll just explain this illustration. I was uh, staying in a hotel in Bahrain when I was still in the, the military. And every day I received for the Arab, uh, the Arab daily news. It was in English, but it was the Arab daily news. And by the end of my two weeks there, what do you think my, my, my attitude had become with regard to the Palestinian issue? I was extremely sympathetic to the Palestinians and I was outraged with the Israelis. And, of course, that was opposite to my, my thoughts before and, and after. And the reason why is because I was reading the Arab Daily News. That was my source of information. Do you understand? My only source of information. And the, the world has something to say about this Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. And if your source of information is the world, it is, it is wrong. It's all wrong. What kind of information do you get from the world about Jesus? Well, this is what we get, as, as if the whole principle is being illustrated. He asks them, saying, he's not asking to find out the truth, obviously. He's not asking to, to garner something for them. He's making a point of contrast. Who do the crowds say that I am? In verse 19, so they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. Now, these things seem plausible, you could almost imagine them to be true in some way. There's an element of truth to be found in each one of these things, or at least it was something that sounded a bit reasonable. But the problem was they were completely wrong, all of them. They were, they were wrong. And were you to believe any of those things about Jesus, you would not be saved. There's too much falsehood in it. It's not sufficient truth to be, for you to be saved. And the point is that the world does not have the information to save you. If you listen to the world, if that's your source of information, you will not have the right information and you will not be saved. Now, thankfully, there is another source of information which is coming right up. Because in verse 20, Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And where did he find that out? He didn't find that out from the world. That's explained in Mark 16, 17. It's the same, same passage in a different part of Scripture, Mark 16, 17, where, Jesus, where Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. See that? The world. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Just to make absolutely clear, you get my point. But my Father who is in heaven... He's revealed it. How did he get that information, by the way? It doesn't say, but we know that it's always Scripture and the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter had access to the Old Testament Scriptures, and Jesus was always bringing their attention to them. And even later on in Luke, he says, Why, oh foolish ones, and slow to believe all the Scriptures said concerning me. He knew those Scriptures. 
And the Holy Spirit had enabled him to put two and two together. This man who, who did all these miracles and fulfilled all the prophecies. He was. He had to be the Christ. And it was the Heavenly Father who revealed these things to him. Through his word and through his Holy Spirit. Now again, on the other hand, the world doesn't have access to this information. And you know that I studied as an undergraduate what at the same time was one of the most fascinating and also depressing fields of study imaginable. You know what it was? World religion. One of the most, again, fascinating and also depressing things. And the reason why I say depressing is because it is a catalog of man's failures to find God. It is one failure after another. Thousands of years, man has utterly failed to come to the right answers about God. And if you want to lose your life along with them, then please listen to what the world has to say. If that's what you want, if you want to seek life in this world that's untrammeled and untroubled, please listen to the world's conclusions. Because they always find something that's going to work in this world. Something that Satan's okay with. Something that the sinful flesh is okay with. Something that the world around you doesn't mind. People always wonder, why is it that all the, the other, some of the other religions, they seem to be uh, lionized by the world? And why is it that it's the, only the evangelical Christians that keep on having their houses burned down and are, are portrayed as horrible and so forth? And the reason why is because our religion is not okay with the world. All those other religions the world themselves came up with. The one true religion is at odds with the world. Look, that's, that's just fact. That's reality. And so if you want to have things easy and, and unproblematic in this world, then just use the world's information to get that. But if you want to have life in eternity, flesh and blood is not going to be able to reveal. It's going to be from God. And, and God is going to give that through his word and his spirit. That's it. Well, thirdly, as we're thinking of those larger issues, we can believe in the world's Savior or we can believe in God's Savior because those things are different as well. And here I think of verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Again, so so these words are so stark, I I cannot preach them strongly enough. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Because he is coming. That's the whole point of Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17. He is proving, he is demonstrating to people that God is going to be holding you accountable for your sins. He has appointed a man who is going to judge the living and the dead... That man is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has proven that by raising him from the dead. So we don't have to wonder if that's happening. We know that's happening. It's demonstrated because of Jesus being risen from the dead. And what then is being said here, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. Now, this goes back to our first point, that the world already has ideas about Christ, but is completely Wrong. Now, Peter, as I, I said, I think he had some ideas about who Christ was. Um, and even though he, he rightly said, you are the Christ, he was in investing that word, that term, with content that was wrong, with some of his own ideas. Now, that's further explained in Matthew. This is Matthew 16, verse 21. It's the very same situation, I think. 
but with this information added. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. The very same information we just heard. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Do you see that? The things of men. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And there it is. All these things lined up. What was the problem? What were these things when he says, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men? And the, the idea is that, that Peter and many other people of the Jews already had an idea of who the Messiah was going to be. And it was not a suffering Messiah. It was not one who was going to, to be rejected by all the authorities and, be, and suffer and die. But one who was going to fulfill all those prophecies regarding kingship and nothing else. Now forget about inconvenient passages like Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about the suffering servant. No, they they neglected those things and they constructed an idea just based on that he's going to be the king. And their idea was he's going to come and he's going to throw the Romans out of here and he's going to take up his, his kingship and we are going to reign along with him here on the earth. And that was fundamentally wrong. They got it wrong. And Jesus himself is telling them, no, 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 that is not my idea of a kingdom. Now, in the future, that's going to happen, but that is not what is happening right now. My kingdom is not of this world. And he says, no, I am going to suffer many things, and I am going to die. And guess what? If you want to come with me, if you want that eternal kingdom, that's going to be your situation as well. You may not, of course, die on a cross. But the whole idea of being rejected by the world, the whole idea of not having a situation of paradise, a situation of ruling in this world, that's going to, that's going to be you too. You're going to be despised and rejected. Maybe not to the same extent, I, I don't know. But the point is, that's the idea of the kingdom and that's the right idea of the Savior. The Savior is one who would save his people from their sins. He would lay down his life as sacrifice. And you know, the thing is, we are still, we are just like Christ in this world. We are servants. We are not in our glory. We are still in our state of humility. Nobody, you, we are the heirs of the whole universe. Jesus says, whatever he has, we'll have. If we're in union with him, if we believed in him, we're the bride of Christ. We're his people. We have everything that there is to, to we, are, we are far more than billionaires, but we don't look it. Right? We don't have the accoutrements to go along with it. We look very ordinary. In fact, we are despised. Not many wise, not many rich, not many powerful of this world become Christians, do they? Because they have to sacrifice that prestige. There's not a single one among us who is not humbled by being a Christian, if you're faithful. If you're faithful, you're going to be humbled because of it. Well, as I say, Peter didn't know. He wasn't mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we need to understand that we can fall astray in that way. We need to understand that our ideas 
We have to believe in, the, in God's Savior if we want to have salvation, not in, in our idea of a Savior, not in our idea of a kingdom. And all these things point to that, that larger principle that we are going to lose our life, and the question is, do you want to lose it now or do you want to lose it later? You're going to die soon enough. Are you going to lose your life then or are you going to lose your life now? For a Christian, for someone who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and has decided, yes, I will identify with him. I will take up that cross. Death is simply a pathway into life. That, that's when you get all those things. That's when it, and when it happens for you. All the things that you are putting off in this life, you get them then. But on the other hand, of course, for those who say, nope, I want my good things right now. I don't think that whole idea of being despised, I don't think that whole idea of being rejected by the powerful and the rich and all the rest of it, I don't think that's a good idea. I want my good things now. Well, that's the point at which you lose it forever. You will lose your life in eternity. Now, as I, I don't know how much clearer I can make this, this thing. To me, it's so, so obvious, but I know that the Lord has opened my eyes and and I guess, again, the question is, are you going to try to hang on to your life now or you, and, and lose it in eternal hell? You're going to lose it now. And, and the problem is, I guess the thing is that people are still thinking, well, I've still got 50 years of this life. And that's part of my calculation. I've still got a lot of years to live it up, sort of like what that foolish farmer was doing, right? That was the idea. But what if I were to say to you, you don't have the rest of your natural life to figure that out, but you have the rest of this day, today, the 12th of October. And at 8 p.m. tonight, Christ will return and the world will end along with your life. Then what? Then what? My suggestion to you, if you're, you're here that, and not a believer, my suggestion to you is that you seek the Lord while he may be found. That you search these scriptures where he is to be found. That you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Christ in order that you might be saved. And we'll all help you. We'll help you. What if you say then, actually I was planning to watch some of my favorite television shows one more time. Or maybe you say I was planning on going out in style and I was going to charge up my credit card at the Metro Center and buy all the things I ever, ever wanted. And you say, I just don't know if there's enough time between now and then to do all of those things. And so unfortunately, I, I, thanks very much for your advice, but I'm going to go do the things that I want to do one more time. And not, what would we think of you? What would you think of that even? Just you yourself, what would you think of such an idea that someone is willing to not be saved eternally, to be damned to hell for the sake of a few worldly pleasures right now in the few hours that we have left? What would you say? They're like that foolish farmer. How foolish. Life is to be had. The gospel has come to you. You can put your faith in Christ and have your life in eternity. Will you not choose that? Will you not seek that in this life? But unfortunately, what I mentioned is the pitiful decision that countless sinners make every day. Please don't be like them. Secondly, I speak to Christians to say this, that being a stealth Christian, that's what I call someone who flies under the radar, that's not an option for us. 
Jesus' words are very clear. If you want to know what your situation will be on Judgment Day, here is the test. It is so clear. I don't know of another test in all of Scripture that is clearer than this one. If you are ashamed of Christ and his word, because some people, you know, they're all willing to talk about Jesus. Oh, yes, I believe in God, so forth. And then you remind them, um, you, you remember what Jesus said. Here's his doctrine. Here's the whole counsel of God. Here's the reality of, of orthodoxy and all these things of sin and of the substitutionary blood atonement and of eternal hell and of, of sovereign election and all these things. And you say, that is Jesus and his word. That's the real Jesus. And they say, whoa, I don't know about that. In fact, I think I'm going to go out of my way not to talk about those things And if I ever do talk about them, I'm going to twist those things so they sound far more acceptable to the world because I'd be ashamed of saying the actual truth. What does Scripture say? Jesus is going to be ashamed of those people. He's going to be ashamed. And I I tend to think what he means of that is he's not going to welcome them. He's not going to say, come, you beloved of my father, into the everlasting kingdom prepared since the foundation of the world. He's going to say, depart from me. You're ashamed of me in this world. Now I'm ashamed of you. It's as simple as that. Now I know that everyone is tempted to be ashamed of Christ. That's the thing. The gospel is foolishness in this world. And even Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And the question, why does he even have to say that? Because he knows that everyone, including himself, tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And you know, the funny thing is, here we're speaking of Peter. And Peter had failed then. He was ashamed of Christ's word This is why Jesus had to say, this is the whole, the context of why Jesus even says those words is because of Peter's being ashamed of that truth of what he just explained. He was going to suffer and die and rise again the third day. And he failed again at Jesus' trial. Some people think he even failed again regarding some compromise later on. And he was given many chances to get it right. And he did get it right because he'd say in 1 Peter 4, 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the matter. That's where he finally came to. He said, I like when I am reproached now. Praise God, I have another chance. Imagine if you're Peter and you had, you had failed on those occasions to take your stand with Christ and, you, and to be numbered among, among Christ's people. And his only desire was that he would be given some chance and the opportunity to actually stand and be counted and yes, to suffer for the name of Christ. And he says, let him glorify God. Because that's what he did. He, he did stand and be counted. And if church history reports are to believe, he himself died the very same sort of death. He was crucified. And he says he glorifies God for it. Yet I would say that not that many chances are they're not guaranteed. Not at all. We don't God was incredibly merciful to, to Paul to Peter, but those many chances are not guaranteed. Instead, the word for us is James four four. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's so simple. 
You want to be a friend with the world? You want the world to be friendly with you? You are making an enemy of God. It's as simple as that. Christians, stealth is not an option for you. Thirdly, also for Christians, I would say don't lose your rewards. It's something I didn't really mention, but you know, in verse 25 it says, the question is, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed? And I didn't go on to mention the next words. Or suffers loss. That's not to be found in the other Gospels. This is a special added part that the Holy Spirit has given us in Luke. And that word that is translated uh, 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 lost is actually suffers loss. And I think that that is a better translation of it. He himself, he's not repeating himself. He's saying two different things. He himself is destroyed. That is, he's not a Christian and he's, he, he, he will be destroyed when Christ comes back. Or there may be those who suffer loss. He's talking about the possibility of a believer who has, for the most part, forsaken his life in the world, but not completely. And the question is, what's the difference? The difference is, he's going to lose rewards. That's the point. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.12. If anyone builds on this foundation, that is a foundation of Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw... Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. This is the great judgment day. It will declare it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If it's, if it's anything that endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, meaning the wood, hay, and stubble, the things that are based in this world, those things, he will suffer lost, loss, but he himself will be saved. So this is the very same word. He will suffer loss. And so even for those who have put your faith in Christ, remember what you want are riches in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Sounds selfish? Nope, the Lord Jesus said it. You want riches in heaven. And if you want that, then you must be willing to suffer loss in this world. And, if, and as much as your compromise on the issue is to your loss, God is, is no, no fool. He does not say things like this and, and then at the end say, oh, uh, well, to, to the man who truly has been willing to suffer in this world, has truly identified with Christ at every avenue and, and is, is, is uh, seeking treasures in heaven. And he says, well, I was just kidding and all that. Actually, your situation in heaven will be precisely the same as the compromised Christian who lived it as close to the edge as he possibly could and had lots of his good things in this life. No. God is just. And we can be certain that there will be a loss, there will be a suffering of loss of rewards for those who compromise. Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That is our situation. Lastly and finally, go tell people. Do you know what Jesus said in this verse, verse 21? He strictly warned them and commanded them to tell no one on the very thing that was going to save them. He said, the very thing that he says, flesh and blood has not, not revealed this. This is a, a word of God that you have, that I am the Christ. He says, don't tell anyone. Now, you can imagine if you were a disciple back then, how much you would want to. I certainly would. I would love to tell people that. Well, Jesus' word for you is go ahead. It's okay now. 
You can go tell everyone else that you want to about this saving truth that Jesus is the Christ. It's the word that will save him. It's the word that we have the privilege to tell other people about. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, even as the heat in this room is, is very high, we're reminded, Lord, that it will be hotter in eternity. The fires of hell indeed are terrible for those who have not put their faith in Christ, those who seek to listen to something else, those who seek other priorities, those who seek to have their good things in this life and care nothing of eternity, those who don't want Christ as he is given to us in the gospel but want some other savior, Lord, that will be their reality in eternity. Lord, we pray that we would not do that. We pray, Lord, that rather we would seek our happiness in heaven forever and that we would listen to your word and that we would put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We are thankful that that word is not a secret anymore, but it is given to the whole world. And Lord, how we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring people to saving faith in that word. And Lord, as for us, our situation could not be any clearer. We know, Lord, that we are going to be rejected. We are going to be persecuted in this world to some extent, And how we pray that you continue to hold back the forces that would seek to make life much worse for us in this country. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to live in accordance with our faith. But, Lord, we'll certainly not be in great favor. We will not be flavor of the month among them. And, Lord, how we pray that we'd be steadfast and not seek the friendship of this world, but rather to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, Lord, that our reward and our riches are yet to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.